Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Kimberly Trung, and I have a very special episode and a very special guest with me today. It is Katie Mazuris, founder and CEO of Luda Security, first of her name, queen of vulnerability research programs, breaker of chains. I had to make a Game of Thrones reference, you guys. Welcome, Katie. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about your passion for coordinated vulnerability disclosure. So I think first and foremost, can we go back a little bit in time and talk about the the fact that you started Microsoft's bug bounty program? Well, let's see. Um, I launched the Microsoft bug bounties in 2013, but that was after about three years of working on this problem um, and how it could scale for a company as big and complex as Microsoft. And I had been working at Microsoft since 2007 as a security strategist, but that was right on the heels of me retiring as a professional penetration tester. Um, So I had been a professional hacker for hire for the majority of my career um, in security before joining Microsoft. And and, and had held various other technical roles in my career. But joining Microsoft, you know, I was coming off the heels of uh, having been part of the at-stake acquisition um, that was acquired by Symantec in 2004. And I had started Symantec Vulnerability Research, which was a very early, like talking 2004, 2005 timeframe, a very early vulnerability research program embedded inside um, a, a vendor. Um, and since you know we were looking as as security researchers ourselves, we were looking for vulnerabilities in third party, third party software that wasn't made by Symantec, and we were reporting those issues um, privately to those companies, getting them fixed, and then we were actually publishing advisories based on our work. So when I joined Microsoft, um, two things happened. One, I started Microsoft Vulnerability Research, where we were looking for vulnerabilities in third party products. I started that in 2008, and it was not only to do the vuln research itself, but also to handle a very important component of vulnerability coordination, which we refer to today as multi-party vulnerability coordination. Um, and that think of that in terms of, you know, as, as descriptive as it is, that it's multiple parties having to deal with the same vulnerability information or having to work together to come up with a solution. Um, So think of it in terms of things like Meltdown or Spectre or those things that required multiple different vendors to coordinate their response. So I created that program at Microsoft in 2008. So you had asked about the bug bounty programs. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward to 2010, and I was actually about to leave Microsoft. I'd worked there for three years. I was ready to move on. I was going to head up... um, I was going to head up security for Adobe, actually, oh. and I, I had my reload package all ready, and I <laughs> slid it across the table. Yeah, I had the whole thing, and I slid it across the table to my Microsoft, uh, um, you know, supervisors, and said, "Hey, you know, thanks. It's been fun, but I'm leaving." And they said, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. But what if you started Microsoft's bug bounty program?" And I was like, "But you said two years ago." An executive at this company said two years ago that you'd never, ever pay hackers money in exchange for vulnerability information. And you said that because you're already receiving over 200,000 non-spam email messages a year uh, coming in to secure at Microsoft.com. So you guys are already, 
Yeah, for free. So you guys are already flooded out and you made this public declaration, which is super rare for a company of this size to say never, Mm, right? And you already said it. So why would I stick around, you know, for this kind of (laughs) like bashing my head against a brick wall? And they said, well, you know, if there's anyone who can figure out a way that we can do it and, and scale it and make it work for us and, you know, make it a viable prospect for us, then it's you. So we, we'd like you to stay and help us with that. So, you know, sucker that I was, I totally <laughs> stayed. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and, and I, um, and then I began, basically, it was a data driven approach. And what we were looking at was Microsoft's reports that were coming in for free were very valuable. You know, certainly those finders right. could have chosen to sell their findings on an alternate market, definitely. what I call the offense market. Yeah, definitely um, not do good stuff with that. But, you know, these folks were interested in getting the vulnerabilities fixed. And so they were turning them in for free to Microsoft. But one key element to this data that we were looking at is that uh, a lot of them were turning in specifically um, vulnerabilities that only affected the beta products they were holding on to those bugs during the beta period, not reporting them, and waiting until after the beta period was over to turn them into Microsoft. Wow. And we were like, that's some pretty annoying behavior. And like, why, why are they doing this? They're willing to help us for free. So it's not like they were, you know, hoping for, for a buyer out there and whatnot. I mean, they could have gotten one if that's what they wanted. So why are they turning it into us for free, but kind of at the worst possible time? right? Like after the beta period is over. Interesting. And we figured it out. It's because the only incentive at the time was them getting their name published in a bulletin acknowledging that we were thanking them. And if the vulnerability only affected the beta product and no other products in that same product line, they knew that their only chance of getting what little reward we offered them was contingent upon that vulnerability remaining in the product all the way oh through the beta gosh. period and making it into the final product. So we had un- unwittingly set up an incentive that got the finders doing something that they didn't even want to do. They just wanted the credit. And if that's all we were willing to give them, they were naturally just going to wait until they could get that credit. So we put the bug bounty for Internet Explorer during the first 30 days of the IE beta period for Internet Explorer 11. And it was solely based on me just showing the head of IE um, the traffic of vulnerable reports where we got hardly anything during the beta period of IE 10 and then a huge spike of submissions right after beta was over. And I said, look, this is a traffic shaping exercise. We can put an incentive at the beginning of the beta period and convince these hackers who are already friendly towards us just to come a bit sooner. And it's win, win, win. It's win for Microsoft because they get the bug information sooner. And while all the engineers are actively working on identifying, fixing bugs, this is the most useful time for them to get that information. So it's win for Microsoft. It's win for the hackers because they get earlier recognition and they don't have to worry about their bug evaporating magically during the beta period and they still get their credit and they also get a financial reward. And finally, it's a win for the users of Microsoft products, because who doesn't want to get a product that has had as many of its security bugs wrung out in the wash during beta as possible, right? So that is the kind of higher level thinking that that got Microsoft to completely change its tune and reverse its public position. And that was just one of the three bug bounties I launched in 2013. The other one, um, that is very notable is in terms of how different it was, was the mitigation bypass bounty. And that was the one where we were, um, 
we were offering $100,000 for a brand new exploitation technique. So it wasn't just for an exploit that worked. That was what, you know, the hacking competitions that happen once a year that are defense oriented, like pwn to own they were looking for an exploit that worked against the latest target. We were looking for an exploit technique that worked in a new way against an exploitation target. And the reason that information was important to us was because we were trying to fix the operating system at an architecture level, and we'd need as much of a head start on new techniques as we could get, right? So it's not just the bug, but it's how you exploit the bug that was materially important to an organization like Microsoft. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say about it before you ask me another question is um, the reason this was so important and the only reason why the U.S. government was willing to start its very first bug bounty program is because of this critical, you know, this critical thought that went into what are the motivations, what are the actual outcomes that we're trying to achieve here. We are not simply trying to just pay hackers money for bugs. It is, it is not really serving your organization well if that is your bug bounty philosophy, is that, yeah, we just need to pay for all these bugs. It's not really gonna get you anywhere in terms of maturing your operation and really creating that triple win, the win-win-win between, it's not just between you and the hackers, it's the users of your systems that you're trying to secure that you are actually trying to optimize these outcomes for. So that's, that's the story. That's amazing. I just imagine this poor person at Adobe being like, why? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, Adobe was Adobe was very anti bug bounty at the time as well, and oh. I can guarantee you, if I if I had if I had gone over to Adobe, then Adobe would have been the first you know major player uh, past Google Ooh. to offer bug bounties. Um, you know, it just that it happened to me. Microsoft was because I happened to work there. This was not an inevitability. A lot right. of people you know, look at bug bounties as, yeah, well, eventually everybody's going to pay bug bounties or it's a logical evolution of everyone's security program. And that's just simply not the case. I mean, if you look at the data of major co corporations today, most of them don't even have a vuln disclosure program or a right. way to get in touch with them, right. at, let alone paying hackers money. So there's a lot more complexity and a lot more support internally for these programs that Large organizations understand this is not something to be taken on lightly, even without cash rewards. This is a process that needs a lot of prep. Right. And I think a lot, there's a lot to be said about Microsoft finally coming out with the strong, if Microsoft's going to do it, the biggest dog in the playpen is going to come out and have this incredible program. I think that was probably a huge influence, a domino effect for several other big companies. So... Next question. How did you get into pen testing? You said you started out as a professional hacker. I spent about seven years as a professional penetration tester. Um, but I, you know, and this was towards the beginning of, of the, the profession of penetration testing as well. Um, I was independent at first and um, doing, you know, security architecture reviews, code reviews, penetration testing, scanning, et cetera, on my own. And a few friends of mine who I had grown up with in the Boston area had started a company called At Stake. And they had asked me if I'd be willing to join them. And, you know, the first time I think they asked, you know, I said, no, why would I like I'm I'm working, I'm doing, I'm doing the job that that I'm doing the same job, yeah. you know, essentially. <laughs> and good. I don't I don't have any bosses and this is kind of <laughs> right. nice. And I don't have to split my, my profits with anyone, um, et cetera. And 
then I realized a couple more years in that I was like, you know, I honor my non-disclosure agreements with my clients. Therefore, I either have to be willing to hire people and supervise them myself and run my own, you know, company to, to grow, or I have to join another company and let somebody else do the sales. And then I can learn from my peers and we're not violating any NDAs because mm -hmm. we're all part of the same company. So I decided that I wanted to be part of a larger group again, and um, that's when I joined At Stake. And that was in, I think it was 2003 or so that I joined At Stake. And then by fall of 2004, the announcement was made that Symantec was acquiring us, et cetera. Um, but before, you know, before being a professional penetration tester, I was a Linux developer. Um, and I worked on uh, an operating system distribution um, that at the time was the very first multi-byte character set supporting operating system for Linux. Um, and that was very important because, I mean, just think of it this way, 20 years ago, we didn't have native Chinese, native Korean, or native uh, Japanese language support for Linux in the mainstream Linux distributions. This was handled by a tiny little Linux operating system company that I used to work for, right? Um, so people really, I think people really take for granted that the computer security industry, they think of it as older than it really is. And they think of modern computing, even modern operating systems as older than they really are. If you just take the, the modern smartphone as an example of the sheer computing power that people take for granted in their pockets and, you know, the, uh, the, the range of, of applications that run on these tiny little computers, the modern smartphone only came to pass with the iPhone in 2008, right. again, a dozen years ago, right? So I think people, you know, make a lot of assumptions in security that bug bounties are inevitable, that they're somehow an industry best practice. They are absolutely not mm. an industry best practice. They are one of many tools that organizations might be able to gain some, some uh, good security gains out of. But as a standalone means to an end where people are absolutely conflating, I run a bug bounty with, I take your security very seriously, you know, and that, and that they're doing some security due diligence. That's an absolutely false conflation of, of those two items. I watched a few of your videos and you had mentioned there's not enough skilled bug bounty hunters. Do you, or bug hunters, I mean, do you think it's because the, this, this is still a very new idea. This is still a very novel idea that hasn't really gotten overall traction. I mean, as someone who works at a cybersecurity company myself, it still surprises me to this day that how many businesses are out there unprotected with just basic cybersecurity software. So the fact that they would also, in addition, have this bug bounty program seems like light years ahead of um, where a lot of companies are at. Do you think it's because it's still relatively new in the grand scheme of things? I think that the bug bounty platform companies have done an outstanding job of marketing their one tool as a silver bullet. And I think that's created some uh, labor market serious questions about um, about an imbalance in the labor market. So you you asked me, do I think there aren't enough skilled bug hunters? I'd actually say there are not enough skilled software developers who know how to prevent security issues in their code. There are not enough in-house 
QA testers who are Mm -hmm. capable of writing comprehensive and repeatable and scalable test harnesses to check for certain types of vulnerabilities. And there isn't enough integration with the right tools into earlier in, in people's processes to prevent a lot of these bugs. You know, the reason why I stopped being a professional penetration tester isn't because I stopped loving hacking things. I, I still love hacking. It's just that it was boring to keep finding the same types of vulnerabilities over and over again, not just from the same client where you could literally just, you know, you could practically just change the date on your report and it's almost all still valid findings, but to find them across the board from client to client to client. And these are these are classes of mistakes that, you know, what we would try to do at At Stake is we try to educate our customers so that ideally when we came back, we'd at least see something new. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We'd at least come on. We'd at least Give wouldn't feel bad about taking, <laughs> you know, taking their money again, right? right. But here's But here's the thing. So I don't think it's that we lack skilled bug hunters. Um, I think that we lack a we have we have labor shortages in various areas Mm -hmm. for what it takes to actually secure software and systems. Um, And I think we have been placing an inordinate amount of emphasis on the people who are capable of pointing out security holes from the outside. And I being, you know, I being one of them, right? Like I'm, I am a hacker. I am, uh, you know, I'm a hacker who happens to be a CEO. But, you know, we've been romanticizing the hacking part of it. Whereas, you know, the real important stuff is, it's kind of what I call the dental hygiene of security. It doesn't mm. sound very sexy, <laughs> nope. <laughs> but it's your best, it is your best bet right. at preventing some of these things. It's like, instead of brush and floss daily, you know, and you'll prevent cavities, it's fuzz your code. It is use static and dynamic analysis tools. It's train your developers. It's bring in-house experts in way earlier inside your organization. If you can't afford to hire them outright as full-time employees, then hire experts, but invite them in. Enough of this reliance on what you missed, and that is what a coordinated vuln disclosure program or bug bounty program is supposed to be for. It's not as a replacement for your internal due diligence. And that's, I think, where the imbalance and and where I think the very successful marketing campaigns of one particular tool type, which is bug bounty, um, has really taken over a lot of the imagination of of folks in the latter half of the past uh, decade. Right. I I think you said this in your RSA talk. Uh, You had an interview from a few years ago where I thought this was brilliant, where you basically pointed out that a lot of companies have been putting the onus on the hacker and not on the onus on themselves to be like, to oh, well, you've got to find my problems in my software. And then you, it's on you to, you whatever, responsibly disclose it to me. And then I will get to it. I, company, will get to it whenever I feel like it. And I thought that was a really great statement. And that opened my eyes for sure. Yeah. And I think the economics of how the bug bounty platforms have played out, we've we've now gotten a good half decade plus of data that shows that, you know, unfortunately, we had hoped that those bug bounty platforms might be an avenue where novice researchers 
could, you know, gain valuable skills at the same time as helping organizations be better, you know, in terms of security. And we were hoping, you know, that there would be a progression of skills um, that we'd start to see in these bug bounty platforms. And I had done a labor market research study um, over half a decade ago at this point on the early bug bounty labor market. And I did that with colleagues from uh, MIT Sloan School, Harvard Kennedy School, you know, actual economists and all that stuff. And we did this labor market study. And uh, we found that the, the labor market for bug hunting was pretty thin, you know, that not a lot of skilled players were, were playing the bug bounty uh, roulette game of, you know, hey, if we're lucky enough to find something and we're lucky enough to be the first person to report it, then we might get paid, right? That's the, that's the bug bounty roulette game is you're doing speculative work in the hopes of getting paid, right? And we found that, you know, the very skilled laborers, they might try a little bit, but, you know, after getting duplicate after duplicate after duplicate, um, and not getting paid for valid bugs that they're turning in just because they weren't the first ones, a lot of the highly skilled ones kind of dropped out. And they might they might report something if that's the only avenue that they can see is, is some bug bounty program on a bug bounty platform. But the majority of them even refuse to go through the bug bounty platforms because of the restrictive terms that those bug bounty platforms try to impose on the hackers that use them, including things like you're not allowed to reach out to the company directly yourself. If you submit through this platform, you're agreeing and we may kick you off the platform if you if you try to raise this issue through any other channel with the company. So, for example, if you tweet at the company that they haven't looked at your report, you know, in six months, that's a violation of these platform bug bounty platform terms. And they could kick you off the platform for that, right? So similarly, we've seen folks trying to report actual data breaches. And if this is the only point of contact that they have for a security person at a company and they go through a bug bounty platform, we actually saw this happen with Capital One. The Capital One Good Samaritan who tried to report that a data breach had occurred at Capital One had their report, their breach report, closed as out of scope <gasps> by a Hacker One triage person when they tried to report it. This is not the only time that breach reports have been shut down or ignored wow. by this bug bounty platform, you know, just basically if they're just kind of focusing on vulnerabilities in scope. Is it in scope or isn't it? Is it spam or not spam? You know, those folks don't work for your organization. Right. They don't necessarily yeah. care yeah. about your users. And so, I don't know, there's a lot going on in the last half decade that I feel like has has perverted a bunch of these really good ideas and turned them into just another exploitative gig economy marketplace where the workers are exploited and both sides aren't served to the best of, you know, to the best, to their own best interests. I'm going to pivot a little bit into a more fun question. I think, well, fun. <laughs> I don't know if this is fun, but I think cybersecurity, whatever facet of cybersecurity you're in, is pro it's got to be one of the most stressful jobs out there. I feel like it's constantly changing. You're constantly on the heels of something. And all that being said, you're obviously CEO of a company. What are you doing, especially this year, to de-stress? Well, um, you know, as the CEO of my company, I've had to think really carefully on what are the company goals, what's realistic for us to accomplish, um, 
what is realistic to expect out of me as the leader of this company um, during the pandemic. And, you know, since I do have school aged children that I share custody of every other week, um, I've I've made changes to the way that I work within my own company. And I've, you know, I've made those changes, um, you know, according to what I feel like I can handle in order to bring my best um, forward to the company. And, you know, I feel like if, if I can't make those changes for myself as the CEO and make those adjustments, what hope does my company have of being a, uh, a well-adjusted and inclusive workplace for others, you know, if the CEO can't can't get that accommodation for herself. <laughs> so certain things like, um, you know, I, I told my staff, I said, look, I'm not taking every other week off, you know, like I when I have custody of my kids, but we're going to move our one-on-ones to every other week so that that takes some of the pressure off of me. And feel free to reach out to me during the weeks that I have have my kids, but just know that I'm taking those meetings off the books. Um, and I've also given them scheduling guidelines for those weeks and saying, look, you know, don't schedule me for anything before this time, after this time, or like I say, uh, between 1130 and 1230 Pacific, because I call that like the, the changing of the guard, I call that the grilling of the cheese. That is when I must produce lunch foods for <laughs> tiny people. And you can schedule like, you know, a, a, a an sort of an in the family meeting, you know, and everything, but just understand that you will hear the grilling of the cheese. I was going to say a nice little sizzle place. in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I think for, for me, accommodating myself and being realistic with myself has been an important part of me adjusting how I run my company. Um, and I think that you know, if we had physical offices, they they still would have stayed closed. I would have I would have kept them closed. I would not have been pressuring people at my company to come back, um, you know, in a condition where they didn't feel safe or protected. Um, you know, and and for me, I think that's an important part of taking back what I feel like modern capitalism has taken away from all of us in this pandemic, which is boundaries. And oh, I feel you very, took the words right out my mouth. Yeah. So I just, I feel like if I can enforce my own boundaries with myself, then, then we've got a shot, you know, at, at all of us um, respecting our own time and respecting, you know, respecting the, the fact that work is a part of our lives, but not the most important part. I love that. I, I mean, I personally, I could not agree more with everything you just said. I think boundaries is a great thing. I think it also, at the end of the day, it helps the company that you work for. I think it makes you a better person, makes you probably a better employee, probably makes you more sharp. So, I mean, like we were talking about win, win, win earlier. I think that's another win, win, win for sure. You clearly have a wonderful career, a lot of achievements. Is there someone in your career that you think helped you get on a path or maybe make a decision that brought you to where you are today, a person who was like a stepping stone or maybe a mentor that, that shaped you? There are, they, uh, depending on your spiritual beliefs, they, they are not capable of hearing me oh. um, in this shout out, oh, I'm with you. but uh, there are, there absolutely are. Um, so the first person would be my mother. Um, and she passed away in 2011 of breast cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but she was a single mom, and uh, she was a reproductive endocrinologist, so she was a wow. scientist. 
And um, and she was uh, a tiny little brown person from an island that uh, where you know it's U.S. territory, and yet the citizens still can't vote for president. So um, okay. that is how I named my company Luta Security. It's it's the nickname of the island where my mom was born, just north of Guam. Wow. And um, and she got a scholarship to study biochemistry, which back then was unheard of for anyone on those islands to get a scholarship like that, let alone a woman. Wow. Um, so, so for her, you know, I'm amazed I got through that whole thing without choking up. Okay. Now I'm choked up. I'm like, how did I not get choked up? And I'm like, Oh, here it is. Now I'm choked up. <laughs> it's so, a gushy moment. I knew it was going like, to be a gushy how, moment. I'm like, how did I, how did I make it through all you're that? Gonna, yeah. You're going to get um, me too because but my she's, mother. Right. You know, yeah, so, I mean, so for, for, for me, I think, you know, that, that still forms part of my backbone in, in doing all this stuff. Of course. You know, whenever, whenever I feel like I can't swing it, I can't hack it, I can't handle it. Um, I keep thinking back and I'm like, she was four foot 11, 95 pounds soaking wet and she managed it. So I am, you know, a hulking privileged giant in comparison. comparison. And so I've got to like just knuckle down and do it. Right. So there's, so there's that. And then the other person, again, depending on your spiritual beliefs, uh, may, may, may or may not be able to hear this shout out, but um, it was a very early work mentor. His name was Dr. Robert Bruin, Bob Bruin, and um, he also died of cancer. So bleep cancer. I'll just bleep it for you. Bleep the bleep out of cancer. Anyway, um, yeah, so he was, uh, he, he at first was a supervisor of mine when I worked um, on the Human Genome Project at MIT. And then later he was a colleague uh, when we both, you know, kind of took jobs at MIT proper. You know, uh, I was leading, I was the systems administrator for the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and this was the late 90s. Um, And he was, you know, he had been my boss in the early mid 90s, and then we were colleagues and whatnot. But here was something that, you know, again, at the time, a 50 year old academic white guy in tech (laughs) was just far, far ahead of his time. So number one, we as women in any professional capacity, we know what the creep dar feels like, you know, the, (laughs) the, oh, they're only, they're only pretending to help you and they want to meet with you to coach you quote unquote, because actually Mm. they want to be creeps. There is no creep dar. uh, There was no creep dar whatsoever. Um, with my good friend and colleague, Bob, Bob was awesome. And, um, and so not only that, actually, I was his uh, online matchmaking coach. And, and I got to tell the story at, at, at his funeral, actually, of how we met for lunch, we were discussing work stuff, then I asked him about how his match.com oh, situation oh was going. God. And he commented that he was going to go on a date, you know, later this evening with a with a woman. And I said, and you're wearing that, you know, <laughs> and I'm pointing to his, like, I'm not kidding you, like, the pocket protector, <laughs> the MIT pocket protector hanging on his actual pocket. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, sweet Bob. I was like, Bob, my brother, no, we are taking you right now. And I took him shopping and I was like, No, you're going to get a nice shirt. And I don't really care. And he's like, Yeah, but I'm not changing my shoes and I'm not going to change this. And I was like, Fine, just the shirt, just the <laughs> shirt. So he changed his shirt. Anyway, he married that woman and she, oh. she you know, yeah, what a so great that story. that totally worked. 
Anyway, point is, Bob, what Bob did for me, though, was he told me he believed in me before I had the language to believe in myself Mm. in that same way. Mm -hmm. He was telling me when I was in my early to mid 20s, he said, you have everything you need to be successful. You should start your own company. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I need way more experiences. I don't know this. I don't know that. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. Well, what he was telling me without telling me was that nobody knows how to do any of this stuff. Really. Bob laying out truth. Nobody does. Laying out truth. You know, and and I only took his advice 20 years later and started my own company. Sometimes it hits later on in life, you know? You know, but yeah, it, it would absolutely be those two. And of course, there are people who are among the living who help me every single day. I mean, I have to thank my entire team at Luta Security, without whom I would have gone absolutely bat bleeping crazy um, <laughs> during this pandemic without them. So I got to give the shouts to where, where they belong and who's propping me up today. It's my team. Um, but it is, you know, in terms of my career, those are the two that really stand out for me. I love that so much as someone who also had a four foot 11 95 pounds again soaking wet asian mother from vietnam war refugee i have a thousand more privileges than she ever had in her lifetime sadly also had breast cancer we have a lot of parallels in our lives here so bizarre maybe our moms are on this call with us right now but probably (laughs) probably 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 hi mom so I and they're both wearing floral pr- prints because that's what they do. <laughs> why, why not? I mean, I love floral print. I, I look wear whatever you want. It's the afterlife. You do you, mom. So I love that. I think that's such a those two stories are very inspiring. And I love that Bob basically told you what I think is personally the secret of business as well, which is that nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's guessing. Everybody's taking their best guess. And it's the people I think who are like, you know what, I'm going to figure it out along the way, who, who get far and create their own business and become entrepreneurs and do these crazy cool achievements in their careers. So I love that so much. My Next question for you is, is there a memory or an event that happened in your career that was super frustrating that that will forever be maybe a learning lesson for you? Oh, it's hard to pick just one. <laughs> <laughs> it is so hard. Ah, oh, boy. what? Which one could I pick that is not the subject of current litigation? Let's see. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> uh, certain things that so i'm 45 years old and i think that's important for for perspective in this discussion because um i think that after me too and a lot of things a lot of of men started to think but wow you know i didn't realize things were so bad and even some women who were privileged enough to mm-hmm. not encounter a lot of, of setbacks and everything that they that they could perceive at least right. um, were had their eyes open as well. But I don't know. I've got to say, um, I think that the reason I brought up my age at first was that when I was growing up, when I was a young person, you're still young. I fully. Yeah, that's because. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, I'm 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 young in terms of I'm I'm still in the middle of my career. But when I was a truly, by any stretch of the imagination, young person, right? <laughs> when I would be considered young by most by most standards, um, the the feeling was very much like 
discrimination and not getting paid equitably or promoted equitably in your career is a thing of the past. Um, that went away in the era of the 80s, which is a long time ago, you know, and everything. Oh and, and that's, you know, that's it. And, and the era of Tootsie and, you know, uh-huh. the people, some of your, your listeners will not even know, understand the reference to that movie, um, you know, and everything of that highlighted workplace discrimination in a certain comedic sense. Um, but the fact of the matter is we were promised an equitable world when I was young Mm -hmm. and we don't have it. And I think the, the answer to your question is, is there a single point in my career where I felt like, Oh, you know, this is, I wish, I wish this hadn't gone this way or I wish it had been different. It's the entirety of it. It's, it's the whole thing Mm -hmm. where I didn't recognize that. No, we were not already past the hump of gender discrimination, racial discrimination, all the things that we thought, you know, as apartheid collapsed in in South Africa, and we thought as middle schoolers and high schoolers back then of that generation, we thought, ah, the world is finally changing. And, you know, this this stuff that it's from a dinosaur era, and it's not our generation, it's not our problem to still fix. That's the big mistake that I think I made in my career was buying that crap, you know, was believing that I could just work hard, keep my head down and all the magical promotions that males in my industry were getting, all the opportunities that they were getting would be given to me as well. And that is absolutely not the case. It wasn't at any point in my career. And I got to tell you that no matter what people think in terms of how successful I am now, it is still not the case today. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely not the case. Yeah. When I'm called up for interviews, they are not usually asking me for the same kinds of, of interviews as my male peers. Right. Um, I, to this day, have never been invited to a live U.S.-based network uh, newscast. And this was even before I had pink hair, right? So you think of me as someone who's well known, well known, (laughs) right? No, but I mean, even before I had pink hair, even before I had (laughs) pink hair, because a lot of people say, "Well, it's you're not on CNN because you have pink hair." And I'm like, actually, I've only had, I've only had pink hair for four years. So when you know, when when exactly was am I supposed to wait? You know, so um, so I think yeah, the answer to your question is there isn't one moment. It's the it's the taking too long to realize Mm -hmm. that it didn't matter how hard I worked, how many accomplishments or achievements I could chalk up under my belt. In fact, I didn't even have a Wikipedia page until I think three years ago when someone took pity upon me (laughs) and created a wiki page for me. Whereas all of my peers from the same era of hacking who actually had fewer accomplishments under their belts did have Wikipedia pages, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so if I were to tell anybody, you know, who's coming up in the industry and and whatnot is to, you know, hope for the best in terms of equal treatment, but keep your eye out for the worst and keep fighting for your place at the table. I am still fighting for my place at the table, even though I've earned it over and over and over again. Oh, so that's uh, sorry to be like a little Debbie Downer here. No. Over, well, I mean, you know, the question is a kind of a but... Debbie Downer. 
was, was the most it's a little was the most frustrating part of your little. career but I totally feel you on that and I think uh, as another as a woman who also works in tech that there is a lot of work left to be done and I will leave it at that otherwise this will be a whole other podcast episode and we could be here for five hours if we want to we're not gonna do that so just to close it out on a positive note, I'm going to flip that question. What is one of your most cherished memories of your career that you're like, oh, I will look back upon this and think this is the best. This is the best. Wow. Um, career wise, I can't I can't point to a best moment of life uh, moment that intersects with a career moment, unfortunately. Oh, well, okay. um, yeah. But that probably is also that, you know, i I've prioritized different things, you know, raising my kids and everything like that, where those are appropriately the best totally. moments of my life yes. um, are, are outside of the work sphere. But I would say career wise, um, it has to be some of those moments like when the Pentagon called me up and said, hey, Katie, I know we've been talking to you and you've been advising us for years on how we can better work with the hacker community. And we're calling you because we are ready to pull the trigger and we want to do a bug bounty. Incredible. And I was like, first of all, you should not start with a bug bounty. That was literally what I said to them. I said, first of all, what have we been talking about? You have not been listening to me at all. And then I shut up. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I should, okay, but I should shut up now because they, they want to do something very, very positive. So that was a pivotal moment for sure, was when uh, Lisa Wiswell, it was Lisa Wiswell from the Pentagon who called me up. And um, it was, I'm pretty sure it was a three-way call or she made it a three-way call, but um, Charlie Snyder, who was also at the Pentagon at the time, those two called me up. And that was a pivotal moment. Um, another one I would say is, you know, is, is when some of my peers recognized me and mm. nominated me for uh, this is this is going to sound funny, but uh, the Pony Award for Epic Achievement. Oh, and they nominated me for that award. Um, I actually got two Pony Award nominations. I'm a judge of the Pony Awards as well. Um, we skipped it this year for COVID complication reasons, but um, but anyway, they they nominated me for Epic, you know, Epic Achievement, and they also nominated me for Best Song for a performance where I opened up a keynote uh, with a live karaoke performance, um, swinging from a metal hoop on stage with fire and backup dancers. So I was oh nominated my. for the song and, and I was nominated for, you know, Epic Achievement um, in the Pony Awards. Um, I lost Epic Achievement to Tavis Ormandy, but if you're going to lose a Pony Award hey, in a good bad, category, yeah, a hey, you know, I, I got no complaints nice. that Tavis won that, that category. But it was, it was the nomination for pulling off Hack the Pentagon um, was what, what got me that nomination. So it was the recognition of my peers that this was not something that was inevitable. It was something that required work, diligence, understanding of the complexity of all the different forces and considerations and pulling something off, not just to check it off and say we did it, but to pull it off in such a way that it opened the door for what we see today. We see now CISA, DHS CISA issued a binding operational directive requiring all federal agencies to have some kind of vuln disclosure program. Um, it's got mass momentum, not just from the US government um, thinking that this is a beneficial way to work with hackers is open the front door and let them report things to you. If you, you, know, if you see something, say something, but it's created a wave of acceptance of my people my own hacker people among governments and organizations in the world. So 
I think if I were to point to point to those moments, it would be around that. Again, very incredible things. I mean, I can just imagine the domino effect, the ripple effect that that's going to have into the future. Uh, I think again, when you look at the, you look at big entities, Microsoft, the government, <laughs> doing these things and taking those initiatives, and being one of the people to spearhead it. That's a uh, I tip my hat to you, lady. So. I've had a great conversation talking to you. Is there a, do you want to tell our listeners how they can follow you uh, or, you know, want to give a shout out to any initiatives that you would love to, um, to give some attention to? Um, sure. If folks want to follow uh, my company at Luta Security on Twitter, um, they can follow my personal account too. It's Katie Mo. It's K. Eight E M zero, and a lot of people pronounce that Kate Emo because it is a personal Twitter account, and I get real on that personal Twitter account. But it's pronounced Katie Mo anyway. Um, Katie Mo, right? Love it. And um, and then you know, Luta Security is actually hiring developers right now. So uh, to see what our latest job listings are, just go to lutasecurity.com/careers, and uh, and then go from there. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Katie. I hope you had a good 48 minutes talking to me as well. This has been wonderful. And again, if you've liked what you listen to, listeners, you can go ahead and follow us at Naked Security on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, if you have any speakers that you want me to interview, please hit us up, tips at sophos.com. I'm happy to take your suggestions and try to book these guests. And of course, until next time, stay secure. Thank you.